Well, here we stand on the precipice of a new academic year, such as that may be, with still so much up in the air, so much uncertainty about what on earth this will look like as schools move toward reopening in some form and universities do the same and, and offices uh, and football seasons get canceled. There are a lot of big feelings swirling around that are, that are on top of what's already a, an anxious or anticipatory and frankly exciting time of the year. There's apprehension, there's grief, there is some anticipation, perhaps restrained. There's maybe some numbness at this point, fatigue. Uh, among, among parents of children my age, uh, among parents of small children at least, there's, there's a sort of a sense of holding your breath. What, what is going to happen? But so much has changed since we were at this point last year. Uh, we're getting used to keeping our distance. I never thought that uh, my, my three-year-old could be trained to use a mask, but here we are. And yet it's far from ideal. I don't need to tell you that uh, getting used to streaming services is not our dream of what church would look like. When a congregation is no longer able to congregate, I think something is very wrong as far as the experience of church is concerned. But whatever your uh, big feeling that is occupying you, we must agree that something major is afoot in our midst. Now this morning I want to sit in that awkwardness, in that difficulty, and see if God addresses us through these lessons. The Old Testament lesson, which Josh just read, is from one of the oldest sections of the Bible, the 45th chapter of Genesis. And you'd think that it might be archaic for that reason, or not, not actually uh, connect. Uh, but the opposite is true. I mean, do you remember this story? Andrew Lloyd Webber made it famous in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's a story of Jacob, but really Joseph, and it spans the closing 14 chapters of Genesis. To call Joseph's ride a bumpy one would be a supreme understatement. He's the youngest of 13 children with 10 older brothers and one younger. And we find out that Jacob, his father, loved him more than the other children. And it wasn't like a, everyone knows it but no one says it. No, Jacob is very, is very clear about his favoritism, and it spells resentment and jealousy and disaster among the siblings. Maybe you've been to a funeral before where, where uh, siblings have said, well, you were always mom's favorite, and then the, the other sibling says, no, it was, I always thought it was you. Oftentimes there's confusion, and, and sibling relationships become calcified and very tense over things like this, but there's no question here Jacob, especially when Jacob gives Joseph what is the equivalent of a Ferrari on his birthday while the other kids get cold, he gives him this, this fancy multicolored coat. And if you read the, the narrative, it's, um, you have to sort of take it in a little bit, but you, you find out that Joseph is kind of a snot. I mean, he, he reports, he, he narks on his brothers. He's a bit of a know-it-all. 
And then he comes, he tells them about a dream he had about all 11 of his brothers bowing down to him. Now, none of us can really control what our dream life is like, but he certainly could have decided not to tell his brothers that this was the dream he had. I can't imagine it going over well. If you're a, a literature buff, well then you, you can see the foreshadowing, the writing on the wall, that this man is headed, this young man is headed for trouble. And that's one of the great words here. I mean, do you know anything about trouble, about difficulty? I say we all do. There's a meme that's been going around like a little internet cartoon, and it's of two people in the middle of a burnt-out wasteland. They're both wearing gas masks, and they're holding ray guns, and they're being swarmed by pterodactyls. And the, the caption says, just getting ready for the last part of 2020. A troubled year, to put it lightly, and not just for outside circumstances. The CDC released this morning statistics saying that one quarter of young adults have contemplated suicide during the pandemic. One quarter. The troubles that Joseph goes through is his brothers, they, they beat him up, they take his coat, they throw him into a well, and then they sell him into slavery in Egypt. After that, they then trick their father into thinking the boy has died by coating his, his, his by taking his, his coat and smearing animal blood all over it so that no one's going to look for him. Now that feels like an excessive punishment for arrogance, does it not? I mean, slavery in Egypt? Unless you think this is a sort of a tidy story, things don't actually get much better for Joseph from there. Sure, he has a little success in his master's uh, uh, household, but then he gets falsely accused of making a pass at his master's wife and is imprisoned for two and a half years. If you were to chart this young man's trajectory, it would sort of be up, 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 and then off a cliff, free fall, hitting every rock on the way down. And yet we're told something interesting. We're told that even when he was being sold off like an animal, in chapter 39, the text says, the Lord was with him. And then later on, when he's tossed into that jail cell, it says, the Lord was with him. Now you might think, well, it didn't do him any good. But let us remember that Scripture never teaches that you won't get clobbered by life when you are a person of faith. You can have, in fact, the clear favor of God resting upon you and still have problems, and problems of the deepest and abiding sort. You see, life is a rocky ride. It was tough in the 6th century B.C. when Joseph lived, and it is tough today. Jesus himself tore the mask off this truth of human life with his own experience, his own encounter of enormous trouble. The man of sorrows, we call him. Now, there's just two lessons here to take from this, uh, this story today. 
The first is that God knows how hard life can be. What we are going through right now, what you are going through right now, is not a surprise to the God of the universe. And it is not a sign that things have broken irreparably. It is par for the course. You know, many of us didn't know how good we had it until a few months ago. And that's what we tell ourselves. And yet, do you remember what 2019 was actually like? Sure, we had a great basketball team, but people were still at each other's throats. The country was still deeply divided. Racism was still a major factor. Cancer was still killing people. And what's worse, that, that movie Cats came out. Andrew Lloyd Webber, I, I joke, but you could say that in 2020, we were fortunate to actually see the nature of life. And life is much more troublesome than the American dream would have us believe. But the second takeaway is that we have an advantage that Joseph didn't have. You see, we know how this rocky ride ends. We just heard it read. When Joseph, after a lot of back and forth and plotting and prevarication, reveals himself to his brothers. It's really one of the great dramatic high points and most moving passages in all of Genesis. He says to his brothers, he says, I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in, these, in, these, in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. It's going to continue. But Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then he falls upon his brother Benjamin's neck and weeps. And Benjamin weeps on his neck. And it says he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And then after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, this is one of the greatest stories of hope and redemption ever told. And its end point is reconciliation between siblings who have done serious wrong. It is a restored, redeemed relationship, and you'll notice that the mechanism of redemption is grace. You see, his brothers are finally known and recognized in their horrible betrayal, and Joseph loves them still. He sobs into their shoulders and forgives them, even urging them not to be angry with themselves, nor ashamed. My friends, if we are to take anything from this story, it's that in spite of all evidence to the contrary, God was doing something good the entire time. The entire, all 15 of those chapters. It didn't appear that way in chapter 37, 
or chapter 38 or 39 or 40. And make no mistake, the sometimes the weight is crushing with no end in sight. There are still five more years of that famine. And yet, even the famine becomes part of the technicolor tapestry that God was weaving into our faithful ancestry. See, this is a story we need to be reminded of, not when things are going swimmingly, as they sometimes do and will do again, but when we find ourselves in the early chapters, when the world is seemingly falling apart, what we discover is that in God's universe, what feels like the end may only be the middle. Indeed, what feels like the end is only the middle. You see, silence is not absence. Hiddenness is not impotence. And often when things look like they're going the most wrong, God is working the hardest for our good. This bears out in that ultimate story to which this one points, that of another favored son, Jesus Christ himself, whose blood was also shed as he suffered for the troubles of the world, indeed, for you. May we have eyes to see the hope that lies beyond the grasp, our grasp, this morning. And as you muddle along through what feels like an interminable phase, and as you muddle into a confusing new year, don't forget that God is with you, and this will not be the end of your story. Amen.